Unlock in Ambitions. And welcome to Let's Start Now podcast, where we intend to bring you entrepreneurs to inspire, inform, and give you an insight into their businesses and how they started. On today's episode, our special guest is Geoffrey Mutawazi. He's the founder of ChargeCo Technologies, a startup that is easing and providing access to electric charging solutions. He's also a vice curator of the Kampala Hub Global Shapers Community and a Halt Price Foundation campus director. Listen in to learn much more about him. Okay, how are you? Good, good. <laughs> How's COVID in Uganda? Well, uh, we're staying safe and, you know, sanitizing and uh, doing all that needs to be done. But yeah, I, I would say uh, the cases are not as bad in Uganda as, um, as you know, I'm seeing across the world. Um, probably because we are uh, well-fed. <laughs> Uganda is a very fertile country so yeah. maybe that plays into you know who gets covid and who doesn't <laughs> okay and how's business well on that side uh, well business is really ups and downs you you have you have a few good days and you also have um a few um not so good days but yeah i think i think that's that's the general thesis of life life is you know a series of, of of short sprints that might be either wins or losses and i mean it's not like a a long stringed you know marathon of constant running it's it's pretty much uh uh you know a series of ups and downs yeah i mean that's just how i view life okay um so uh, can you tell us more about ChargeCo Technologies? What you guys do? What you're about? Your product? So the entire thesis of um, you know what ChargeCo is, uh, I would I would like to give you more like a top bottom approach. So uh, a community or a country or a civilization is usually judged or advanced by how much energy it uses because. I feel like energy really multiplies um, effort. It uh, enables new possibilities and it pretty much increases, you know, quality of life. So in this case, you know, look at your mobile phone uh, and look at your body. So you eat three times a day, but you charge your phone once a day. However, mm. its energy needs have gone much higher compared to, you know, where we started. You know, when you had the Nokia 3310, you could charge it and that thing could last a week. And then now you have a smartphone, which is, you know, a thousand times better uh, and does a thousand more things. But I mean, you still think, uh, I mean, I mean you, you, you can't expect it to last as long as, as, you know, the initial mobile phone that had one or two purposes. So... We, we basically identified this challenge of, you know, battery life, and we are solving it in a way that um, in case you're, you know, out and about, away from home or away from um, from work, and you're out of battery, you can easily charge your phone uh, in a public, uh, at a public charging uh, station. So in this case... Um, we're setting up uh, phone charging stations in public places and we we service, you know, um, uh, 
not limited to um, uh, bars, restaurants, events, uh, you know, uh, transport hubs. And we're currently, you know, solving the energy access problem by, you know, giving you, uh, giving you access to energy, particularly for your phone all day round. Uh, and this is uh, pretty much a, a paid service. So you pay about half a dollar uh, per charge per hour. And we're also uh, on, on one side uh, moving to electric vehicle charging, not just, you know, uh, sticking to the phones, but we feel like electric vehicles could be a really good growth um, uh, industry for us. And we're starting off there, not just by, you know, charging, but first, you know, helping the industry standardize and take on a more sustainable scaling approach uh, through having one charging standard and planning the uptake of, you know, electric uh, electric vehicles in the country and, you know, prioritizing, okay, which sectors need electric vehicles more than the others? Where are the growth points and how can we catalyze that growth? More like fatten the cow before, you know, you start milking it. Yeah, so that's pretty much what ChargeCo is about. We're basically, we basically exist to power um, mobility devices and communities. Yeah. So, wow. That's, that's very... basically it. Brief description, and um, I'm just curious to know uh, how did this idea come about for phone charging? Was it that you you were you know you had a phone with bad battery? Because I do, I have one, and I think that solution is pretty needed, especially since we spend 90% of our time on our phones. Everything nowadays can be done on the phone. Yeah, that's a really interesting, you know, um, uh, statistic. I mean, everyone after. After using your phone for a year, your battery automatically becomes bad. Automatically. I mean, and this is not by design, but it's by capability. So I'll give you an example. When you buy a phone, it's, it has between 300 and 600 cycles uh, that, you know, at really good batteries. So a cycle is full charge and full discharge. So you charge it to 100% and you use it till 0%. Now, after those 300 to 600 cycles, and in most cases, it's about 400, that's you charging your phone once a day for about a year. Yeah. And when you notice when you notice most batteries, your battery gets bad after about a year. And coincidentally, new phones are released every year. If you were to take the most consistent, you know, uh, mobile phone manufacturer, which is Apple, they release a phone every year or a series yeah. of phones every year. So um, your battery is supposed to get bad. Uh, and this is because it's a chemical, you know, it, it runs on, you know, chemical processes. And I mean, this nothing can be have, you know, perfect performance for more than a thousand times without, you know, having a few, you know, bumps on the road. So, how I came up with this, you know, idea is I was uh, first a journalist uh, right after school, and then I, you know, went into uh, account management for a software, uh, a software solution sales company. So when I was a journalist, I would go cover events as in as an entertainment journalist, and I would cover events in the night. At times you're out till 3 a.m., uh, 4 a.m., and your battery is down, and you basically need to stay online um, and what I would do is I would go to the DJ and ask him to charge for me. So mm. uh, I would actually move with a, with a bag, with my USB inside and my plug, and I would give him to charge for me and then keep coming and checking on it and, you know, you know trying to monitor and find out, okay, do I have enough battery uh, to, you know, unplug and then go have fun or go take some more pictures. 
we'll go get some stories. And then this moved, this, you know, continued even after I left journalism and went to, went into um, account management. So I'd have to meet clients at a few restaurants or, you know, at their offices and at times you get to the place and by this time uber was prevalent uber safe border in uganda and at times you're using these ride share apps and you know getting an uber after your meeting is quite a challenge if your battery is down so yeah. i felt like okay i really need to solve this problem uh and by then i really couldn't afford a power bank so I said, okay, I need to start moving with my charger again. So this is you in a restaurant, plugged in somewhere, you plug your phone in somewhere. Uh, you keep watching it while you're in the meeting to make sure no one steps on it. And usually these <laughs> so plugs are... At- <laughs> yes, these plugs are usually at the, you know, almost at foot level. So someone could step on your phone, someone could pick up your phone. So you have to keep, you know, splitting your attention between the phone and the meeting. And I, I'll tell you that re- really reduces your um your attention span and your ability to close that deal. So yes, I decided, okay, I should solve this. I raised some a bit of money. I raised about $700 from a friend uh, called Joseph Ndiho, and he, I mean, he was a colleague at work. He was, you know, at the office downstairs. He had my idea and decided to, you know, seed me with a bit of money. And this was really a, actually a grant. Um, gave me $700, a boat charging station. I tried out, you know, this entire service for a few months. And then I quit my job to focus on it. And, um, uh, well, one and a half years down the road, uh, here we are, more than a thousand phones charged, um, uh, more than 13 events serviced uh, over the past um, one year, and, you know, uh, and a really exciting business uh, that's, you know, um, uh, looking really, uh, looking really amazing, and, you know, and I, and I think we're into something, uh, uh, something really exciting. Um, I also saw something that was, I mean, it was new to me, I didn't know, uh, on your website, you did suggest that most people charge their phones still 100%, and that's not, that's not right, I, we should be charging uh, our phones till 80%. Maybe elaborate on that. I mean, I didn't know that. I don't know. <laughs> Me neither. So I could I could adjust that and say, if you have if you if you really look at it chemically, the ideal battery you know capacity is fifty percent. You should keep your phone between forty five to sixty five percent, and that that's really I mean you'll be living by the charger all the time. So the ideal is of course eighty percent. Don't charge your phone till a hundred percent because you know if you got a lighter and you know you started hitting an object, a metallic object for you know five minutes. Yeah. It will get hot progressively. Uh, and if you heated it, if you heated the same object for, you know, you know, constantly with a lot more flame for, say, one minute, it would get hot, but then it would cool down if you had five minutes to charge, I mean, to heat it. So it's the same thing with the battery. So the battery's, you know, enemy is cold and heat, extreme cold and extreme heat. So the more you charge a phone, you're generating heat. And if you charge it constantly till 100%, you're pretty much... Uh, creating way more heat in the battery, which degrades it much fa- much faster. So the ideal is, you know, charge your phone till about, and this really depends. So if you're going to have a 
I mean, if it's during the day or, I mean, if you're leaving home, charge your phone till about 80% and then use it uh, till about 20%. Don't let it drop below 20%. And then, you know, keep it in the middle. If you're home, charge your phone till 60%. And then when you're leaving, about 30 minutes or 20 minutes before, plug it in for the extra 20%. So from 60% to say 80. Why? Because that enables you to not use up a full charge or a full discharge because it have you if you've noticed your battery gets gets i mean if your if your battery is at 0% yeah. it takes you a while for for the phone to you know boot back up so it yeah. will charge for like 2 or 3 minutes or 5 minutes without you know lighting up why because it takes a lot of energy to start it from zero and it also takes a lot of energy to fill it to 100% from 80 so um I mean, the ideal, chemically, the ideal is 80% if you're going to use the phone. But if you're, you know, at home, at leisure, 60% is ideal. And when you're leaving, top up with another 20% before you leave. Yeah, it's, it's basically, it basically comes down to how batteries work. They're not, you know, electronics. They're, you know, chemical uh, chemical uh, devices or uh, wow. chemically operated. So, I mean, the more you understand the chemics, uh, I, uh, the, the chemical side of um, things, I mean, the better your battery life. But it's really complex. So maybe, I mean, does that mean that in the long run, wait, because I'm, I'm really trying to understand, okay, fine, so I charge my phone up to 60% and then never let it drop below than 20%. Is that going to guarantee me a longer battery life in the long run or what exactly is it going to help me with yes that's what it does so if you don't let your phone uh you do full discharges and full charges you're pretty much i'd say deceiving the battery that you've not used up a full cycle so a full cycle is zero to 100 charge 100 to zero discharge so the more you play in the middle you're going to have a you know you could even hypothetically um, increase your battery, you know, lifespan from the one year that it's supposed to, you know, uh, um, with really excellent battery to say two or three years. So, and this takes a crazy amount of discipline. So you yeah. have to be disciplined with how yeah. you charge your phone. And you also have to be disciplined with how, how you use fast charging. So only use fast charging when your battery is, I mean, when it's at a really critical point. So if you're like out and about uh, and you see a charge core charging station, yes, we have fast charging in our charging station. So it makes sense for you to charge uh, using fast charging and for a short period of time. So don't charge to 100% using fast charging. Then at home, you should aim to have the slowest charger because a slow charger maintains your battery's health. Uh, it doesn't heat up the battery. So it kind of maintains it at a really good, you know, health um, health capacity. So, I mean, you should be careful with how you use fast charging. And then you should also, you know, if you follow the battery management, uh, battery charging guidelines, yeah. it's, it, it definitely helps you have uh, a good battery for a much longer time, more than the one year it's, you know, supposed to be at that capacity. So, but, but if I decide, okay, fine, I'm going to follow Geoffrey's guidelines or... The, the the guidelines that are out there uh, about batteries and all that and realize that maybe I have so much to do. Say, for example, today I have so much to do and I'm now deciding, okay, I'm going to charge my battery up to 60% and then try to not... Uh, 
get it to 20 i mean lower than 20% and then mm-hmm. and then when it gets to 20% i keep charging it like maybe i don't know how many times like say four times in that day don't you think that would also like hurt my battery in the long run as opposed to no it doesn't okay. it doesn't at all it it keeps actually that's the best way to charge your phone uh short charges you know in between that range short charges between 20 and 60 or 80% is the best way to charge your phone best like if you could do that all the time your phone battery will be as good as new for a really long time it doesn't hurt the battery most people say that if you charge your phone if you plug in and unplug all the time yeah. it actually spoils the battery but it's just a myth it's it's unfounded same way people think you're supposed to let your battery drain to 0% that was on the old battery technology yeah. because old batteries had memory so if you charge if you if you didn't discharge it fully it would re- it wouldn't remember what zero is and what 100 is so yeah. it would end up you know losing capacity it, they were really primitive but the new batteries have really good battery management systems uh they and they're really more intelligent than the previous one and they have a lower depth of discharge so depth of discharge is how i mean how much you can drain a battery so lithium ion batteries have the best depth of discharge I mean of all batteries. Um okay, you've dropped a lot of battery knowledge on us. Yes. I feel like there's yes. a lot of things that we thought that we that you just cleared up right now. What did you study in university? Is it something you studied like electronic engineering or I don't know, is it a passion? Well, I'm just a, I'm just a, a, a random guy who reads a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really study engineering or anything, but I just, you know, love knowing stuff and I love learning about stuff. I actually studied business. I started my first business when I was um 14 years old and I was wow, basically okay. selling so first of all 14 years. Yes. What did you sell? Do you mind telling us what business that was? So I was selling video games and software to so I had two two business models and by the way this is in hindsight but when I actually look back it was a really interesting I I think I was really smart. So what what happened? <laughs> yes, you were <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so I had video games. So what what I would do is I would get video games, sell them to my, you know, uh classmates at school. Now if you had a game I wanted, I would swap the game with you. So I would give you a game you wanted that I had and then I would, you know, get the one you have that I want. So we'd basically do a barter trade. But if you had no game that I want, but you wanted a game, you wanted to buy a game, I would sell it to you. Now that was outright sales, butter purchase or butter mm-hmm. trade. And then I had that was on the business side. So after I mean on the school side. So after school, I had my seat my bag I used to move with a city bag so I was I was in day school and I would go to town. I had about four shops I would supply with video games and software. So these guys I would give them as much as they would want. Yeah. I would never cap how many games and software they can get for. But every day after school, I would come and pick say a small amount of money, right? Every mm-hmm. day regardless of whether I've given you a game or software or I've not and this was more like what you'd call the subscription business model <laughs> where i don't really sell to you anything i i mean i sell to you something you know i give you as much 
as you can consume, but I pay you, you know, uh, small, uh, I mean, you, you pay me in, in small installments, yeah. uh, regardless of how much you're getting. Um, yeah, so I was basically doing that, selling video games and software uh, to businesses and to also um, fellow students. students. Yes. That's interesting. But yeah. I read this thing somewhere, that most of the people that start at a young age when they're doing business, they usually end up um, very successful. So you're on your way there. <laughs> Wow, thank you, thank you for the, thank you for the, for that. I, I, I hope I do get successful. It's been, <laughs> you will it's be been good. a really long time. I wanted to <laughs> ask, what uh, lessons do you think you learned from selling video games at fourteen, while other people like were playing with dolls and I don't know what was <laughs> doing at fourteen, but uh, it was not business. <laughs> Um, what lessons did you learn from that experience that you think are helping you run or be a better entrepreneur today? So one, I, I really learned to use my computer a lot more. And that got me not to... I actually wanted to study IT, but I decided to study business instead. Because I, I noticed at a really young age that you can teach yourself a lot of things on the computer. You don't really need to go to school for that. Uh, so that that influenced what I what I really wanted to do as a you know as a as a course when I got to university. However, on the other side, I learned that you know the best way to grow as a business, the most favorable way to grow as a business is invest profits. So I got into this point where I was using CDs and like compact discs, and these CDs would get scratched all the time. Yeah. So there's a time when I made so much money. I made close to forty dollars, forty or fifty dollars. Uh, that's about eighty thousand Uganda shillings. I mean, if I convert it in today's today's um, uh, dollar rate, it's about forty. But yeah, um, I made close to uh, eighty thousand Uganda shillings in one week uh, selling. And by the most popular game I was selling was the two most popular games was GTA San Andreas and FIFA. I am not sure. So I saw, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I saw this, and I made a, quite a bit of money. And instead of you know spending the money, I decided to reinvest it into the business. And this was like at, as I think fifteen, and I reinvested it into the business to buy an external hard drive because the external hard drive could keep a lot more um, video games and software. Mm. And on the other side it never got the challenges of, you know, discs getting scratched. So the durability of the stock uh, in this case was a lot better compared to, you know, uh, so I just, I basically learned that, you know, reinvesting your, your profits and growing the business organically is an amazing thing. And this pretty much set me up for, you know, uh, uh, for, I think it helped me avoid a lot of mistakes that businesses face, yeah, like taking out at a really early stage, uh, and also you know uh, the challenge of not not you know future proofing yourself because by then external hard drives were a really new thing, and you know uh, it, it was I was basically transitioning the business from an analog or yeah from from a very manual kind of thing to a more um, advanced you know yeah. storage uh, storage solution. Yeah. I mean, at 15, you were already reinvesting. I feel like if I had money at 15, <laughs> nothing, I don't know, but it wasn't for food or I don't know, you know, games, things that 15 year olds do. 
Yeah. Did you have um, like did did you have business business uh, entrepreneurs as maybe parents or family members growing up for you to to learn from? Yeah, I learned a lot from my dad. I spent a lot of time. I do spend a lot of time with my dad now and before. So um, my dad is an entrepreneur. He owns an automotive um, uh, repair you know, garage. So yes, I spent a lot of time with him. And yeah, maybe, maybe I did, you know, uh, get some, you know, subconscious lessons. But I mean, it was really just seeing opportunity and, you know, just utilizing it. I feel like one thing led to another. Not, I don't think there was that, like that one day where, you know, I just got a magic idea, a magical yeah. idea, and you know, decided, oh, I should really do this. No, it was like one thing leading to another, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, I'm in entrepreneurship. Very interesting story, actually. Thank you. Um, another thing, we realized that you're also part of Health Prize or a president, if I'm not wrong. Yes. Yes. Um, so I joined the Health Prize in. Uh, I think it was 2017. So I tried to host it at the university, at my university. I just joined Isbat University. I failed the first time. And then I tried it the second time. Uh, that was 20, 2017, 2018. I, I applied for a campus director role and I got it. I introduced the competition at my university. And yes, a few, um, a few teams signed up, but I wasn't able to make the cut for the 15 teams. So I tried again. Again, 2018-2019, I hosted the competition. We did go to regionals. We reached the regional finals, particularly so out of the regionals, you know, uh, among the final teams that, you know, pitched uh, to win the regional finals. And this was a really good part on my back for particularly, uh, I mean, how good uh, ideas are because this team I was, you know, uh, helping out, you know, from uh, the team that won at my university. I mean, I saw them, you know, starting from, you know, a random idea to, you know, building it and, you know, elaborating it, uh, uh, elaborating more and, you know, building a pitch deck, thinking out how to, you know, grow the business, looking at growth opportunities. And, you know, just that, you know, that process kind of got me to believe in myself a lot more. And yes, uh, it was a really good eye-opener to... Uh, for me uh, to, you know, even get into entrepreneurship more seriously at that point. So by then I was still employed and, you know, this was a very good, you know, uh, driver for, you know, where I'm at right now. Yeah, but afterwards I became a community builder for Uganda, in charge of Uganda for about a year. And then, yeah, that was 2018, uh, no, 2019-ish, 2018, 2019-ish, yeah, yeah. about. But yeah, it was it was a really amazing experience. Yeah, but I think um, I, we, we were even talking about this in the chat before. Um, I think this kind of competitions really build this build people up. Like whenever you participate in such competitions or even just participating in something that's going to help others or stuff like health price, I think they always have a way to build you up in terms of, of course, build your confidence, like you said, and also generally just help you focus and see what's, you know, what's really out there. Or even if you're able to actually get to somewhere. Yes, definitely. Uh, health Prize is amazing. I, I, I would say it shaped my thinking and it got me to think 
much bigger. But I mean, it's always, I mean, we look at all these things and we think there's just that one day or that one experience, but it's really a combination of so many factors. I mean, uh, I, I had a quote from a friend um, some time back and she said, the, when you desire something genuinely, the universe conspires to help you achieve it. That is such yeah, a, I feel I like, yeah, I really do. I feel like if you have that desire, it's it's i mean the 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 stars do align to enable you you know fulfill it or bring it to life yeah. it's also it's like a, there's also this thing of the art of manifesting or for people you manifest what you want to happen by speaking in, yes. into existence and you work hard and most likely it will happen definitely and i think it's also all about being in the right spaces so i mean who do you surround yourself with so i've been fortunate enough to you know join a bunch of really exciting communities um that you know drive you to do more with your life and i feel like your community or your immediate circle or your inner circle really shapes how how you think and and what you do achieve in the end. So that, that's also a really good driver uh, for, you know, how life or how things do turn out uh, in so, the end. Another thing, going back to um, Charge Co., I saw that you guys, how it works is you have two different types of charging stations. Mm-hmm. Standard and I think a premium. I don't know the name. Prime. Yes. Um, one uses fingerprint and the other yes. uses a pin or a code. Yes. Do so you usually we're... have, yeah. sorry, do you usually have both of them in the same location and, or how does it go? Like, first of all, explain to me, yeah, how does it work? So currently we, we, we're basically looking at, okay, the standard locker is a lot more rugged. It works really well in, you know, high use locations. Um, it's, I mean, it, it's the kind you take to a public location with all kinds of people. Uh, and the, the prime local, which we're actually working on upgrading, is, is, you know, a concept we came up with to provide the premium uh, experience. So much faster charging. We're integrating UVC sterilization in, in the charging station to be able to, you know, kill all the viruses and bacteria on your mobile, on, on your mobile phone to basically disinfect the mobile phone. We're adding... Um, uh, much faster charging. We're adding a battery backup. We're adding a better authentication system that is the fingerprint. And I mean, it's it's the ideal charging station for a high-end bar or restaurant or mall or airport. Uh, more like the you know high-end locations. So we we deploy solutions according to the location. We don't do a one-size-fits-all approach. We look at what the location is uh, like. What's the kind of clientele they serve? Uh, what what do these people care about um, uh, more? And which solution would work best? And we're we're yes, we're basically tailor making you know solutions for particular locations. For example, some places have unstable power, and you need to stand by generators, and they don't need that. But maybe people there use more card payments, so you'd maybe need to add card uh, card acceptors. So it's, I mean. We lead with the customer, not, you know, having that one size fits all it's, you it's know, solution. Very, um, that so you guys uh, personalize. Yes. Very interesting. 
And another thing, who pays for it? Is it the restaurant? Your is it the restaurant that pays for it, or me as a client? I pay, and then I get to use the charging part. So we noticed that yes, um, so many restaurants would like to provide this as a service, as a free service, but um. At the moment, uh, our most prevalent model that's pretty much preferred by, by most of the partners we're talking to is, is, the, is the pay per use, so the customer's paying for it. So if you look at it this way, there's lots of restaurants with free Wi-Fi and there's, there's lots of restaurants with paid Wi-Fi so, um, or pay-per-use Wi-Fi. So it's the same, um, it's the same kind of um, approach. We, we, don't, we also don't limit uh, the application, but we've seen a lot more locations that would want to monetize this than, uh, than those that are you know, uh, looking at uh, providing it as a free service. So it's the restaurants that do pay? But they want to monetize it. So, so for some, for some, uh, we're having cases where we've not set up any free charging uh, uh, stations that are basically free to the customer and paid for by the restaurants. But we're we're seeing a lot of interest um, more in the, you know, paid uh, paid for by customer, you know, segment. So. For uh, for the moment, right now, all our all our monetization is you know customers pay a fee. That's half a dollar or two thousand shillings uh, per charge per hour, and that's basically how it works for now. Um, however, we have we have a, another business model where restaurants basically pay a monthly fee to you know um, have the charging station there for their customers. But I mean, this hasn't really taken off. Mostly because, okay, some restaurants can afford it, but then uh, also due to the pandemic, most of the restaurants are not doing well financially. So they would really do with a, with a, with a, an extra revenue stream compared to, uh, compared to what's happening at the moment. Uh, uh, with, uh, I mean, compared to what they would want um, uh, in in I mean in comparison to yeah, you know, either customers I mean it makes more sense if if you're providing it as a free service but not that many locations can afford to you know um, foot that cost and a few of those locations would want to earn a bit of money from it because of the financial you know you know situation they're in due to yeah. the pandemic. And how many charging stations do you have now or locations? So we currently have so we currently have one location and we have basically used um, so we started with one charging station, which is pretty much what we'd call our proof of concept. Yeah. We have uh, we have about twenty-one locations in plan for the next one year that we are going to, you know, expand into. And we are currently raising capital to move into the, you know, refinement stage. I mean, we call it a refinement stage because we've gone through all this, you know, uh, we've gone through the testing period. We've tested how, um, how the service works. We've gotten traction. And now we are, all we're doing is, you know, refining all those learnings, adding all these uh, amazing features that customers are asking for, um, reaching out to more locations and serving more locations before we get into a scale, you know, stage. So uh, we, we, we're definitely not looking at, you know, jumping, uh, jumping all the way to scale. 
um, we're looking at taking a more progressive approach to things. And yes, that's 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 so far what we're um, what we're doing. So we have one location, and uh, and we've but we've we've basically piloted in around four locations. So two bars and um, and two restaurants over the past one year. assume that you have um, a lot of tech people behind this and I know talent acquisition is one of the hardest things for startups how has it been for you what are you what advice would you give other people so I operate in a very very interesting side of you know uh, of business because uh, what's happening at the moment is I'm building a hardware business. So hardware talent is hard to come by because of the low industrialization yeah. uh, in Africa. So very few people are actually building things, building physical things or building electronics from scratch. Mm-hmm. And if you look at this in comparison to, you know, um, China, where there's so much engineering talent and on the actual building of stuff, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Africa is, is I would say, not doing so well in that field. However, there's a lot of talent on the software side. So there's a lot of software talent that has, you know, come up over the previous years because of the, you know, um, adoption of mobile phones, adoption of, you know, um, laptops and all these devices that people can use to actually learn how to build stuff. But, I mean, it's, it's one thing to learn how to code on a computer it's another thing to learn how to, you know, fabricate metal and build electronics and solder together parts and, you know, build PCB boards. It takes a lot more, you know, I would say training, more specific training and hands-on training. And it also it's also resource intensive. So we, as a continent, we haven't built that yet. So it's still quite a challenge. Hardware talent is very expensive. Uh so on the continent so we're taking an approach of we know we can't you know sustain an, an actual fully fledged hardware team at the moment uh, at the moment so we we're basically uh we're basically outsourcing some of the core some of the core attributes of you know our design process so building the software side which is much simpler because of the availability of talent and then you know outsourcing the hardware side so the building of the pcb boards the you know fabrication of the charging stations and all these other components that need to be added are done by a contract manufacturer that we're working with in china so i i think what happens is at times we try to we try to i'd say force our ecosystem or our, our environment to give us stuff that it doesn't have yeah. and at the end of the day we are this we are you know we are disappointed because it hasn't given us those things but it didn't have them in the first place so doing an audit of really what you're doing and what's really capable in you uh, i mean what, what's your what your uh, what what's really possible what your environment is capable of providing is so important so doing an audit an ecosystem audit and finding out okay how much engineering talent do we have how much um capital is flowing around you know in in, in, in my ecosystem, how many ecosystem partners are there? How many um, 
how many government support um, uh, uh, organizations are you know focusing on my my sector or my uh, or on startups in general so doing that audit and not asking a goose to lay golden eggs when you know it can't uh, really mm. makes sense so yes if you're looking for talent try to do an audit first but I I think software talent is easier to come by compared to hardware talent at the moment. Yeah, uh, since you've been working in the in that in that kind of field for about I guess two years now, one year. Um, what do you think? Oh, two years. Two years. So, what do you think is the main issue yeah. around that? Like around now, talent acquisition. Would you say maybe it's uh, an education issue with Africans, or why do you think Africans haven't gotten to that part now, becoming more hardware? Um, maybe more into hardware or, uh, you know, becoming almost like China or the, the um, Americans or these other people that are able to do their own hardware. So I'd say for the start, um, manufacturing is a really complex, I'd say, industry. So it starts with, it starts with one, um, uh, training. There's not a lot of, you know, engineering training schools that really specialize in you know various things and even the ones that are there we haven't seen a lot of technical i would say technical training colleges or or training schools that that are i would say loved by young people so most of the most of the amazing um colleges are teaching things like or universities are teaching things like business are teaching things like, um, you know, IT, are teaching things like law. I mean, are teaching the fancy stuff. But we're yet to see a lot more people going into the dirty stuff. And I feel like for the the most, if we really need to develop Africa, we need to get down and dirty. Um, Before you build all these amazing tech solutions, you need to actually build roads. You need to actually build, you know, factories. You need to actually, you know, um, go and farm and actually dig or, you know, operate machinery. And all these sound so, you know, I, I would say not so fancy for the youth. And I feel like it starts with that culture change and getting people more comfortable with, you know, such things. And then also on the flip side, uh, on the other side, you're looking at, um, uh, you're looking at the, I would say, success stories. Yeah. So we we in Africa are looking so much at Silicon Valley or, or the mature tech ecosystems. And what happens is, you have a lot of um, a lot of people looking at Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates who coded their way to success, yeah. but no one is actually looking back and saying, "Oh, there's a guy called Rockefeller who built one of the largest oil companies. There's a guy uh, called you know Thomas Edison who yeah. built Edison General Electric, uh, which is what you'd call General Electric now. Yeah. You're looking at people like um, Carnegie who built Carnegie Steel, which is now United States, uh, United Steel or something. Uh, You're looking at people like, um, uh, you're looking at, I mean, so many people like Henry Ford, who built actual automotive, you know, manufacturing plants. The people who developed the the, the, the foundations of the developed economies we're admiring now as Africa, built them 
on actual sweat, actual hard work, actual labor. And I feel like the African youth needs to, you know, shift their vision away from Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos <laughs> and more towards, you know, um, Andrew Carnegie, more towards, you know, uh, John D. Rockefeller, more towards um, Henry Ford and all these industrialists who built the foundations. And I would say at the moment, Africa needs more foundations, but then you need to do them with a thought of, okay, we're building this foundation, but it also has to be future-proof. So don't go and build a railroad. Yeah. Um, maybe think about how can I build Hyperloop uh, a Hyperloop, you know, transport company. It's a bit future, uh, futuristic, but then it's more realistic because you're building stuff to move the continent's goods and services. Yeah. Uh, how do you think about, okay, I need to build the equivalent of Edison General Electric, which is more like an, an, a Pan-African energy distribution system. Uh, and this doesn't have to be a centralized grid. It could be it could be a, a series of mini grids or micro grids that are interconnected. And I mean, this is a bit futuristic because maybe you're using solar, you're using lithium ion batteries, which are of which both of these are really drive, uh, being driven down in terms of costs and adoption is going up globally. You, I mean, you're looking at the future, but you're also looking at the deficiencies of your environment and solving for those deficiencies in a fundamental way not you know building a lot of fancy apps yeah. which don't really you know impact that you know farmer in the village or don't really generate a lot of value um uh, for lack of a better word in terms of you know growing gdp or driving or improving people's lives yes so there's only so much an app can do but i mean building building hard things building infrastructure is what africa needs at the moment and a lot of engineering talent is needed a lot of emphasis on for example germany uh, has a lot of technical training schools and all these technical training schools are attached to uh, to companies like Daimler, to companies like Volkswagen. And you know, as you're studying, you're you also you know interning at this you know automotive manufacturing company, and you're basically having hands-on training. Yes, there's something you're saying, and I understand. But I think also as Africans, we need to understand that we're a young continent, not just in terms of the people, but also in terms of development. When these, we, That's why I don't like us comparing to the Western world. When the Western world was having yes. the industrialization, they were fighting and scrambling for Africa where we mm. had the resources, but we did not have um, the knowledge or even the understanding of what they needed those resources for. Yes, we have the resources because most of these things that you know are used in... Um, how can I say, in industrialization, like manufacturing, we have the raw materials, so it should be easier for us to build. But the problem is we don't have the skills to know, uh, you know, what's this for, or turning that raw material into something that can make another thing. So I feel like we're getting there because even with the software engineering, it's, it's happening now. Well, it happened in uh, Silicon Valley, I think, in the 2000s. So we're getting there, and we've always been a step behind. Yeah. Because, like you were saying in Germany, Germany probably has professors who have PhDs and whatnot in in, uh, manufacturing and all these other things. But in Africa, if you look in 
in the literature sense. Most people even who have those degrees got it from the West. So we need to kind of also, yes, our continent is not where it needs to be. It could do better, but we're trying. I feel like we're trying considering um, the circumstances that we were, or the, the hand that we're dealt with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have no... I would say in this case, um, it's not good enough to try. I feel like we need to put ourselves... I'll give you an example. At the moment, there's a battery arms race happening across the world that nobody knows. So every continent is rushing to build an electric, I mean, a, a battery manufacturing eco ecosystem. All these continents don't have... I mean, very few of these continents have all the minerals required to make these batteries mm -hmm. available within the continent. However, of the more than 170, you know, gigafactories that are being built across the world, only one is in Africa. But most of the, but 60% of the world's cobalt comes from Africa, from Congo. Yeah. You know, we have all the nickel, we have all the lithium, we have all the, you know, uh, uh, graphite, all these minerals are on one continent, whereas all these other continents have fractions. So, uh, you know, Asia would have a, a bit of lithium. Australia could have lithium. Um, uh, and, you know, South America could have lithium. But, you know, it's only Africa that has all the minerals in one place. But why aren't we having these, these discussions? Why aren't we thinking of where the world is going and planning for that using our resources. You mentioned the resources are a really important driver, but I feel like you can't cry foul if you are not utilizing your resources mm -hmm. and someone else comes and does it for you. The thing is also, so, like, most of these resources that we're talking about don't actually belong to us. Yeah. Most of them were sold off. So I think for us, it's our government to kind of understand, okay, yes, also the fact that our government is mostly like people who are 60 year old and above, yet the continent itself is one of the youngest. It has, you know, more people are younger than older. So the decisions they make are not like looking at the future. They sold these minerals to, I'm sure part of these minerals we're talking about in Congo, majority of them don't belong to Congolese people, even well, though... Yeah. I mean, that's true. I think also, even if we're talking about factories and all that, I feel like first in Africa, we have a problem with electricity. So converting those raw materials into um, ready goods that now can be like metal, it takes a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. Energy that I don't know, <laughs> I'm not very familiar, but I assume is hard to get here in Africa. So can I give you an interesting statistic? Uganda, mm -hmm. Uganda generates 1,200 megawatts of electricity. It consumes only 600 megawatts, including exporting to Rwanda and Kenya and Tanzania, right? Yeah. So we, we only utilize half of our electricity in Uganda. By 2020, 2026, 2025, thereabout, we'll be generating 3,000 megawatts. And all this is, you know, in the pipeline. So power plants that are in, you know, under construction or, or planned. Yes. Uh, we're going to be at you know, twice that, twice, you know, what, where we're at right now, 3,000 megawatts. Mm -hmm. And local consumption will be about 1,000 megawatts. We have electricity. This is the sunniest continent on the planet. Yeah. It's like solar panel manufacturing on the continent. If we know we need to industrialize and we're going to need, you know, solar panels, well, we could import all these, all these 
amazing talent from Europe and ask them to build the solar panels here. Why aren't we doing that? I mean, I feel like we need a lot more strategic approach to things. Whereas you could build a shoe manufacturing company in Africa and sell shoes to people, you would generate a lot more you know, impact by building a solar panel manufacturing plant or a battery manufacturing plant that's going to then power thousands of shoe manufacturing companies. Yeah. So I don't think we have an energy problem. We have a thinking problem and a priorities problem. Yeah. So once we prioritize the right thing and we think the right way, trust me, it will take less than with the right thinking and with the right priorities, it will take less than a year for Africa to grow like crazy. Yeah, I feel for Africa like to be leaders. the where did yeah. these guys come from story. But another hope I have is I'm seeing as the newer generation grows and make changes and people like you now talk about these kind of things, having these kind of conversations, it's a start. That's how it starts. Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, people might think this is conversation for conversation's sake, but there could be someone listening that you know is going to, you know, think about, you know, where to put their efforts instead yeah. of building, you know, something that generates wealth for him or, you know, looks fancy. He's going to go and actually say, you know what, let me go build something a lot more, you know, impactful. Yeah. Uh, for lack of a better word. Um, and I think it all starts with the right mindset. Mm -hmm. So if we have the right mindset as young people, we can then, you know, put our minds to work. I mean, you, mm -hmm. if you didn't think of the right direction first, then you just, you can't find yourself, you know, yeah. on a road you didn't set yourself on. Yeah. On a road you didn't set off on. So you have to set off on the right road first. Yeah, yeah this is... I mean, I like to see how, as Africans also, our views have changed. We no longer think of, you know, most mm -hmm. I, yeah, we're going to also go to the America for things to be better. That's where we want to bring that here. We want, you know, the change we want to go see out there. We want it here mm -hmm. and yeah. home. And um, yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, a friend of mine told me that um, a friend of mine, uh, uh, he studied in the U.S. and when he came back, he said, "How do our leaders not like nice things? Like, <laughs> I'm sure these guys have traveled. Yeah. Like, they've seen nice things out there. I'm like, how, 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 how are they not wishing that these things were here? How are you not wishing that you had, you know, uh, a whole city that's, you know, powered by renewable energy? Um, how are you not thinking that you had, you know, a whole market?" that, you know, has a venture capital, you know, fund that is funding, you know, small, small vendors that are, you know, selling a bunch of electronics and, you know, really amazing components that then feed this industrial base that you're trying to build. How are you not, you know, what? wanting these things for yourself? Like you go and visit, like basic example, you'll visit your friend, you'll see a nice cup or a nice chair, or a nice TV, and you want it for yourself. Yeah. I feel like human thing. if we as young people and our leaders have the same thing, even though you, you've not traveled to the US or the UK, how do you not see things on TV and say, I would want our streets to look like that? Yeah, yeah there's, um, there's a huge greed in Africa, and I'm glad to see the, the younger generation, as they grow, they are demanding for better, better, be, yeah, a better government, a better strategic 
reasoning MPs and you know um, parliament members because as you can see also like I know in Uganda right now there's a um, rise in police brutality because of people speaking about I guess things that have been happening or things they're unhappy with also in Nigeria it's not just there young people are in the street saying we're tired of this this is not working we need a better government in in general so it's interesting to see yes so I would say I would say there's the youth are starting to wake up uh, and it's not that we've been sleeping, but I feel like all over the continent, people are starting to notice that we're being short sold. Um, uh, and I, I would like to add to this that, I mean, whereas the, all these amazing stories of Africa is rising, who is driving that growth? Yeah. Who? I mean, it's probably multinational companies from Europe, from the US, from Asia that are actually reaping most of this GDP growth and this double uh, uh, digits of, of growth, of, of GDP growth in Africa and not Africans. So I feel like, yes, the bus is being driven, but who is driving it? I feel like Africans getting into the driver's seat and particularly young Africans is a really good step in the right direction. I feel like that's going to have a game-changing effect on how, how I would say, the next 10 or 20 years look like for Africa. And this has really started with, you know, small revolutions that are, you know, are political in nature. But, I mean, we're going to see a lot more economic revolutions too. We're going to see, you know, a lot of demand for support for young uh, small businesses. Yeah. You have so many young people with no jobs uh, you have so many young people with great ideas, but very little capital is flowing towards those those small businesses that are employing the few people who are employed, and also to the ideas that are not yet started. But you know, if they did, they would probably you know move the needle. So I feel like this has been a start. Uh, all these uprisings, all the political uprisings, could be you know a testament to something bigger coming. Uh, and if this is driven by Africans and for Africans, um, it's it's. I, I think it would be much better. So uh, yeah, to add on uh, that, anyone watch there was yes? a, I think a finding or an article that was released saying how a lot of African startups actually get investment, like really good high or raise a lot of money, are owned by foreigners. Like ten out of ten top, um, I think startups in Kenya. Yeah, were owned by foreigners. And the Kenyan government had to start, I think they've implemented it, I'm not sure. They started um, something where a foreigner could not own, I'm, I'm not so sure about it, but I'm sure you can find it online if you're really interested. Um, foreign companies or companies, startups that are owned by foreigners have to have, I think a 42% or a certain percentage of employment of the locals. Like you have to employ locals. You can't just benefit from a country. And I think that will help. Like such policies will start helping because we, what we've seen is a lot of foreigners do come in Africa and benefit because they raise more money than other African startups. I don't know if you, you've experienced that as well. So yes, it's a, it's a prevalent issue. Um, and this is not because there's no capital in Africa. Mm -hmm. I feel like before we say hey, um, African startups need to raise more money. Um, we need to also say, hey, how many Africans are actually funding African startups? Sure. Have you thought of that first? Yeah. I mean, how many high net worth individuals have actually invested in African startups? How many, Afri how many venture capital funds are, you know, black 
owned or black led. So you need to start by believing in yourself before the rest of the world can believe in you. And I feel like the first step is going to be, okay, how do we build local angel investor networks where, you know, someone working in a large multinational corporation that's, you know, generating a lot of money from, you know, selling stuff to Africans, but he's also paying him a crazy amount of money, say $5,000 per month. How can this guy maybe put aside $1,000 and at the end of the year, get $10,000 and invest it in, say, three startups? Uh, and this will help, um, you know, increase the success rate because in most cases, angel investment or that initial round of capital is so hard to get compared to the subsequent rounds. Yeah. Once you're out of the terrible red zone, and why i mean so many people tell you this statistic that everyone loves to throw around oh most african businesses don't go past their first birthday why because they have no funding so if if we and they also i mean by the time someone is you know working in a large company they have a certain amount of networks they have a certain amount of experience and they that can rub off on you know this startup that they've invested in so it can give a, give them a bit of expertise and advice or you know mentorship and these are the simple steps you need to take before we start asking for funding because if that funding comes and God help you, it doesn't work out, then you're going to have a different story. You're going to have a story of 80% uh, of African founded startups fail despite raising funding. Yeah. <laughs> because at the end of the day, this person is white. He's funding a black or African startup. He doesn't have local context. Yeah. So he's not going to give contextual advice. And at the end of the day, you might take his advice because he's a guy with the money, yeah. but, but I mean, that's not in your, in, your, in your interest. That advice might probably lead you down the wrong path, and then you'll end up failing compared to, you know, starting off with an African guy, investing in you with skin in the game, with local expertise, local networks, yeah. and, you know, and, and more like that pride, that pride of I'm building something for my country or I'm building something for my continent. I feel like that's the most sustainable approach compared to, you know, asking for this funding. Such a very interesting aspect. Yeah, I've never really looked at it from that perspective. Yeah. Like, yes, we are asking investors, why are you not investing in Black? But Black people yeah. or Black-owned businesses. But at the end of the day, are Black people also investing in Black businesses? That's another thing. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah. That's very interesting. I've never looked at it from that aspect. Yeah, you have to really take a two-sided approach to things. I mean, if you have only one side, only you one side, then I mean, you you're pretty much um, you're pretty much going to have a one-sided, you know, um, outcome. So it won't be there won't be a lot of equality. So you'll have all these exits if a startup exit happens and say an African guy gets uh, so uh, maybe a Ugandan or a Rwandan gets to exit with say $200 million. Where is he going to spend that $200 million locally compared to uh, a white founder exiting and having $200 million? He's going to send that money back home or he's going to move back yeah. and you know hopefully spend it that side. So I mean if you have a lot more success stories here then you know the possibility of you getting an exit and that exit pretty much boosting the confidence of, you know, the small businesses, more like those Mark Zuckerberg type successes, the Elon Musk type successes, those 
Bill Gates type successes will then be African stories. And then more Africans will be motivated to, you know, you know, go down the same path. I okay, another thing about that. I don't I think there are enough African success stories. I don't think there are they're just not um publicized or they're not emphasized as much. I feel like there are Africans doing a lot, but you wouldn't know about them until you do a lot of research. So what you're saying the problem is we also kind of um, need to get more people to talk about their story. Another thing, also Africans, we like to idolize people who who aren't sure. our own, rather than also kind of giving the same approval to a you know a great businessman who is in the same country doing well. How the his success story is not going to even though it's great and it's in your context, it's in your area, in your region, someone you can easily uh, relate to. We like to idolize Mike Zuckerberg, someone <laughs> from another continent. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, look at it this way: how many, how many large media brands are African in Africa? Who is telling the stories, first of all? Yeah. So, if you look at the large news publications, most of them are foreign. Yeah. Everyone watches BBC, CNBC, reads Forbes, um, CNN, yeah. uh, and I mean, I, I I would I would be surprised if you could name one media brand that is dominant on the continent and is African owned. Yeah. I can wait. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll, I, I'll, I'll trust me. I'll praise you if you come up with one. <laughs> Yeah, that might take a while. <laughs> it's gonna take a while. <laughs> yeah, but also, yes, I feel like we need to support our own. It starts there. Yes. So um, being Pan African, telling uh, telling stories, uh, telling African stories with African media, makes a lot more sense. Yes. Yeah. I think maybe move to uh, some of the challenges that you, you have faced as an entrepreneur. As you, um, Geoffrey, what challenges have you mm-hmm. faced as an entrepreneur and also what challenges have you faced while running charge called technologies? So the major challenge is, you know, technology is moving so fast, <laughs> so fast that we can barely keep up. So I'll give you an example. Um, we launched with a quick charge to uh, charging speed in 2018. So we you know, deployed our first solution early 2019. And between now and then, by then quick charge three was really new, was a new charging speed, charging technology. So quick charge is I would say the Android uh, charging, charging speed um, you know, classification by a company called Qualcomm. So Qualcomm does, you know, uh, does charging software and hardware, uh, and and also develops chips um, uh, for mobile phones. So yes, um, we came up with this, uh, and between then and now, we've seen a almost uh, an almost you know three times increase in charging speed. So from Quick Charge three. We're now at quick charge five, and customers are having to demand are demanding for much more than you know what we launched with in 2018. So having to upgrade the hardware over time 
uh, is one of the challenges we're facing. The world is moving so fast in terms of, you know, um, mobile phone technology. And we're having to play, you know, catch up uh, on that uh, from the hardware side. Now, on the, on the business side, of course, the biggest challenge is, I'd say, funding, because so many... Uh, there's so many startups out there, but there's little uh, funding chasing these startups. So, uh, and it's even worse when you're a hardware startup because hardware startups have a lot higher, uh, much higher operating expenditures. Uh, so, I mean, um, capital expenditures. So you need a lot more money to start a hardware startup compared to a software-based startup. So, yes, um, funding is a huge problem. And I would say there's a lot more micro challenges that come in day by day. But I mean, that's the life of an entrepreneur. It would be an entrepreneurial of me to state those because, I mean, they come and go from, you know, um, uh, from customer acquisition to, you know, product development to, you know, um, team motivation and all these other things to investor relations. All these things do happen to every business that starts. So I don't think that's a new thing. However, the two major things are the world is moving so fast in terms of technology that we can barely keep up with the customer, you know, um, demands. Mm. But um, also funding is a challenge. And and I think uh, Jeff Bezos says it best that, the I mean, instead of focusing on competition, it's better to focus on the customer because competition can be beaten. You can beat competition. And then what happens? Mm-hmm. But then the customer is never satisfied. Never. And I guess that's a good thing because it's a never-ending race. It's a it's an infinite, you know, play, an infinite match. You. you have to keep on trying to satisfy your customers. You have to keep on, you know, finding new ways to serve them, finding new solutions to their problems. And you know, I feel like if you lead with the customer, if you take the customer into consideration first before anything else you cannot fail yeah for sure um so we've talked a lot about um car so we've talked a lot about charge pro and um africa in general the business we want to know more about you joffrey as joffrey what are some of your hobbies Mm -hmm. well um i love reading Firstly, um, I, I love basically knowing stuff. Uh, and one of the biggest ways, one of the, one of the ways uh, by which I, you know, put myself at peace is by knowing that I know stuff. <laughs> so if I ever feel um, out of place or incomplete, I just go and learn something new and I feel like, oh, today's today's a great day. I know I know much more than I knew yesterday. Yeah. So yes, I love that. I love running, so pretty much exercising. And I would say I love to play video games. <laughs> <laughs> but I've had to reduce the video game uh, you know, gaming, uh, because of you know work and all this. But yeah, um, I love if I if I had the opportunity to you know if I had like a billion dollars uh-huh. and I I could I could sit back and not do anything 
uh, yeah, I would just lock myself in a room with video games and, and yeah, food subscription. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, what does your day look like? Like your typical day? Like, say a Monday. How does a Monday look like for you, Joe? So, I mean, my day is during the week. I'm mostly doing a lot of investor discussions. We are currently in a capital raising, um, uh, well, stage. Yeah. And yes, I have to have a lot of calls with investors. I have to attend a lot of webinars. I'm having to learn. I mean, typically, every day starts with reading. <laughs> uh, I start off by reading a chapter two or reading an article, I basically start off by learning. And then uh, on a few of these days when I'm feeling like, yeah, I've, uh, I've, I've pretty much gained a little bit of weight. Yes, I go out for a run for about 30 minutes to an hour, get back home. Mornings are where I do my knowledge work. So things like writing proposals, thinking up concepts, um, uh, coming up with, you know, ideas and solving problems, more like the mind stuff happens during the day. So uh, the typical afternoon for me, morning is definitely solving problems, thinking, reading, conditioning myself. Afternoon is basically um, talking to customers, talking to users and having a few meetings. So most of my meetings are, if it's unavoidable, I have some of them in the morning if they're mind you know, provoking where I actually need to do a lot of thinking. Uh, then in the afternoon, if there are pretty much sales pitches, simple, you know, partner discussions, those I, I have in the afternoons. And I also, you know, spend a lot of time talking to customers. And well, evenings for me are webinars, uh, discussions like these, spending time with family and, and friends. Yeah, but generally, I try to split my day into, you know, bits. So in the morning, your mind is fresh. You can think, so do that. In the afternoon, your mind is not so fresh, but you still have, you have a bunch of energy. So yeah, you put it to work, uh, talking to customers, going out there, having meetings and stuff. And then evening, you sort of relax and yeah, uh, spend, uh, spend some time, you know, um, with family or talking to friends. Yes. Yeah, so you talked about, um, like usually you talk to customers a lot. And I'd like to know yes. how do you see, can I say sales or your marketing? Like how do you get new clients on board? Or how do you get to work with restaurants? Do you just go into a restaurant and tell them, oh, I have a charging, maybe I have a mobile charging service and I want to I want to work with you? Or how, how does it go? How, how does how does it look like when you're usually marketing your business or trying to sell? what you do to, to customers, potential customers? So the, the interesting part is we have more demand than we can supply <laughs> at the moment. Our biggest problem is actually raising capital to, you know, you know serve all these customers. Yeah. So we have so many locations that would want to, uh, you know, set up, you know, charging stations. However, yes, uh, I mostly talk to, I mean, I stress, up conversations with just about anyone and you could find that some own locations 
for example, last week, I was basically talking to users at one of our locations where we have a charging station. Uh, that's uh, Kenji's, uh, Kenji's um, coffee bar. And uh, yes, I was talking to a few users. And well, some of them happened to be, one happened to own a, a, a spa and he needed a, he felt like it would need a charging service. Uh, one happened to, you know, do a bit of work with banks and thought that, okay, this solution would be really interesting for my banking, you know, clients that I service. And I mean, some, you you talk to, you know, a random customer and or a potential user, you're telling them about, I mean, the charging service you have, and they could give you some ideas on how you could, um, how you could maybe serve them better. So they'd say, oh, I would want you know, to see faster charging or I would want to see this in a place like this because I frequent this place, I shop at this place, I uh, I go to gym at this place. So understanding your customer's journey, more like their lifestyle also helps a lot. So I basically strike up conversations. I've never really had a challenge with, you know, conversing with people or you know starting conversations it's it's it, it comes naturally for me uh so social interactions i'm a social butterfly <laughs> um if 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 you if you put it like that and i mean i talk to just about anyone and you could get lucky that's a customer you could get lucky that's a user you could get mm-hmm. lucky that's an enterprise client but you really can't know until you, you know, strike the conversation. Yeah. And I think also genuinely being interested in, you know, knowing more about the person, um, knowing more about what they do, asking a lot of questions, giving them as much information as they would like. And yeah, things happen naturally. Yeah. And um maybe on the personal view of things, um, who would you say is your role model or someone that inspires you to wake up and be the Joffrey that you are <laughs> that you are now or the Joffrey that you hope to be? So I have a few role models really and there's none none is a one size fits all. Yeah. Um, I would say there's I'll, I'll outline a few. So one is Vusi Tembequayo. Yes, I he's a really good friend. Yeah. Uh, he's a really good friend and uh, and an amazing uh, entrepreneur. And this is because he's built a business in Africa. He's sold the business and he's gone on to build and develop African entrepreneurs. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, this is amazing for the start. Despite all the other things he has done, like building one of the best impact um, uh, investment uh, or venture capital funds in yeah. Africa, and or, build, or being uh, you know an amazing one of the top um, speakers in the world, yes. So that's number one. Uh, number two, there's a guy called Stephen Bartlett. He's a founder, one of the founders of. Uh, startup called uh, social chain it's in the uk mm-hmm. and yes he's i just love his story and where he's come from where he's at right now he recently exited his business he's originally from africa his parents are originally from africa but yeah he grew up in, in the uk yeah. and lastly of course elon musk I um knew. I knew amazing it. entrepreneur I knew. Uh, 
Elon Musk. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, amazing entrepreneur, second richest guy in the world. I mean, who would want to be that guy? And um, uh, multi-talented, I mean, multi, I mean, He's, he's so well versed with so many industries and he's disrupting so many industries. Yeah. Uh, and he, his work ethic is just amazing. He, I mean, I, I really can't put Elon Musk in, you know, five words. It would need a whole essay yeah. uh, or, uh, or, <laughs> or, or pretty much an article. But yes, um, he's, he's an amazing entrepreneur. And I like to, you know, have different role models for different things because um, whereas no one is perfect uh, and there's no one size fits all role model. Uh, and I would say for me, the person who has had the most influence on me is Elon Musk. And number two is Vusi. Yeah. I like Vusi. Yeah. I think Vusi is really, he, the thing I love about Vusi is the fact that he's like his opinions He's, he, he doesn't, mm-hmm. it seems that he doesn't care, but he, he's not afraid to voice out what he really thinks and what he thinks can actually yes. Yeah. And another thing, yes. uh, another thing I like about him is the fact that he shares his knowledge. It's, yeah. even if he's having a whole masterclass or he had a paid masterclass, you're going to see that masterclass will reach regardless. Yeah. So we, we need more people that are able to share their information, that are able to help other engineers. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I once I once had a discussion with him and I mean I asked him, don't you at times give away proprietary information or don't you at times feel like holding back some information? Like did you overshare? Yeah. <laughs> and he gave me a really interesting answer which I mean fascinated me because he said most of the people, majority of the people will listen to this stuff and leave it there. Yeah. Very few people will actually take it up and implement it. Mm-hmm. Very few of those will be consistent with taking up and, and, and implementing that. So if someone told you, you know, the biggest problem you, you're facing that's going to, you know, solve all your business problems is having consistent records. Yeah. And well, someone will not take the advice and, you know, stay the way he is. And someone else will take the advice and do it for two weeks and quit. Mm-hmm. then less than 1% of the people who have listened will actually be consistent with that advice. That's right. And those are the people who will get the results. <laughs> so it's really interesting. You'll share all this knowledge and guess what? Not that many people will, you know, take it up. So you might as well still share it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why a lot of, but I, I see it especially with Africa. People don't like sharing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. That's true. Um, on one side, it is, and on one side, it's not. Uh, I met with an entrepreneur, a friend of mine, just this evening, and he was, you know, he had to, you know, mention this like five times, like, hey, how, I mean, I really want to tell you about my idea, um, and I need some advice from you about this. Um, but yeah, I, I just hope that you keep it to yourself. And I'm like, okay, do it. you'd rather tell me the idea you'd rather tell me the idea and I help you improve it yeah or you keep it to yourself uh and you have I mean you have an idea but it's not as good it's not the more you share the more additions the more valuable it is but then you also have to be cautious with who you share your idea with 
Yeah. Can that person add value to it? That's the one thing. Yeah. That, that's the one. So the person you're sharing it with, and if you can actually add value to it. Now, ideas belong to the executor. If you share with me your idea and you never execute it, I mean, you might as well not have shared it. Yeah. Might as well have kept it to yourself. Yeah. So, so many people have the same idea. Someone will tell you, meet people will tell you, ah, Mark Zuckerberg stole my idea. I, I had the idea of Facebook in 2001 when I was, you know, studying in the US. Yeah. Like, why aren't you Mark Zuckerberg now? He executed and you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> so if there's anyone to blame, it's yourself. So yes, it's, there's a risk of someone stealing your idea. But what's the probability that they'll execute it as well as you will? Yeah. What's the probability that... There's so many, for example, there's so many ride-sharing apps and all of them, most of them are, are thriving. Yeah. Many, many are even beating Uber, which was one of the originators of the idea. One of, and I would say Uber also stole the idea from someone who yeah. is still doing it and is still making money. Yeah. Uber stole, Uber borrowed the business model of a company called Lyft. And Lyft, yes, Lyft was yeah. founded... Yeah. Previously, as Zimride. Now, Zimride was an idea a student saw in Zimbabwe, and people would stand on the road with money in their between their fingers, waving down cars, saying "lift" yeah. if you're going the same direction. And they started it in universities. So, if you're moving from one university or one city to another, you'd write your name on a board and the time you're departing and people would join you on your ride. And it was called ZimRide. Then it evolved into Lyft. Then Uber, which was a black car service, by then, hence the black themed color, it was pretty much an executive shuttle service. Yeah. And they saw Lyft working out, Lyft doing this interesting, you know, community ride sharing thing where people could hail all kinds of cars. And they weren't focusing on the, you know, black car or executive car service, car hire. And they said, wow, maybe you could try this. And they tried it and it worked and they scaled it. But, but Lyft is also working. Lyft also has a bunch of customers. It's actually huge in the US. It's not... yeah, but I mean, there are startups that are beating Uber in their markets. And Uber is having to acquire them. But they copied Uber's model. I mean, so there's, you see... yeah, there's room for for a lot i just that people yeah people i feel like people um here in africa they, everyone thinks if i tell you about my idea you're going mm -hmm. you're going to steal it but i can't and even if i did i won't execute it as you yeah mm -hmm. so we need to get away yeah. from that but maybe it's not really all about that have you ever considered that maybe i might not tell you my idea because i'm afraid that you might hold me accountable if i never go through with it in my lifetime, then probably like you remember that idea that you were thinking about that time. What's you know what's happening? But I feel like you need people to hold you accountable. It helps yeah. if if yes, I'm to execute an idea, mm. I, I'm actually rooting for you. Yeah, and exactly. you 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 always need we need you always need um someone. I mean, you can be very motivated, but your motivation can you know, slow down. And if I am here to pick you up, why not? And remind you of why you need to do what you need to do. I feel like it's good when people hold you accountable. So I don't think people hold back because of that. Mm. I feel like it's other thing of maybe not 
I don't know, not being confident with the idea Maybe, to the point you think yeah. someone else might take it or not having enough. I really don't know how to explain yeah. it, but we just need to start doing more sharing. It helps. Yeah. And also, if you can find someone else also who can partner with you and take that risk with you, why not? You don't always have to be the, yeah, yeah. the person. You you might also be a co- co-founder. You might find your co-founder co- fi- um, your co-founder through that through sharing your ideas so i feel like there's more to win than lose when you share yes yes so sharing is sharing helps you uh though i mean share with the right people i think that's the most important thing if you're going to share i mean if i met some random guy uh i mean also you really shouldn't the most brilliant ideas or suggestions could come from the most unlikely places that's one thing yeah. But if you really want to add value to your idea, you should deliberately share it with people who can add value to it. Mm. That value could be from a person who has no expertise in that field, but has an outsider's view, which is really unique. But then it could also be from a person who has domain expertise and it could help you see all the obstacles you're going to face before you even reach them. And that's a plus from just sharing. Yeah, there's, um, I don't know if you know this artist, he's called Mbiri. He's from, he's a salty soul. He's one of, salty soul has a brand called Soul Generation and he was one of the artists and he said something that was nice. He said, when he releases a song, he goes to the lady that sells him like vegetables before he releases a song and asks for her advice. Yes. Most people wouldn't do that, but that's the person that might give you, you know, that's someone who's, who, who's a listener. That's someone who might give you great advice. So, yeah, I really like yes. that. Yeah. Um, you, you've shared so much advice on this, uh, but uh, maybe any last advice to any other people in business or just entrepreneurs in general or doing the same thing as you are. Uh, who are into hardware startups so i would say i think the most i i had this quote i think when i was 16 or 17 from a poet called sully bricks he's a he's a spoken word artist uh, actually from the uk and he said appreciate the past utilize the present and don't be afraid to create the future yeah nice and i feel like this sums up most of what we've said like understand that you know there were things that were done in the past by certain people and they made an impact yeah there are things in the present that you can utilize the resources that you have around you that you need to slow down and look at and take note of but then there's also a future that's coming which is not going to ask for your permission before it disrupts you true uh so taking it into consideration also helps a lot uh, to future-proof your business or to future-proof whatever you're doing. So I think, yes, it's, it's, it all comes down to believing in, I mean, taking those three things and putting them into action and having a, you know, a really, a, a really interesting moderation or prioritization. So if you live too far into the future, you'll be that guy who never makes any money or who is, working on so many exciting things, but doesn't have rent paid. But then if you live too much in the present, you'll be paying rent, but you'll be disrupted tomorrow. But then if you live too much in the past, you'll be that dinosaur. Yeah. So having that moderation or, you know, balance, uh, Vusi says that you have, to, as a business person, you have to think 30,000 feet and 50 feet. Yeah. So think really high, really strategic, but also think really low, really granular. Yeah. And that helps a lot. So um, next up, of course, um, 
just think big think big solve big problems solve a problem for a billion people and see what happens yeah like solve a problem for the entire world and see what happens do something that you know advances the human race and work on aim for the highest good and see what happens like what's the worst that could happen yeah you're not hitting that goal yes you, well you could try again with a different goal i feel like uh just to close there's there's a saying that i don't know i don't know where i actually had this but it goes like god blessed us with opportunity but he cast us with choice ah uh, oh, that's a nice one yeah because there's so much opportunity so much yeah, but the choice the choice <laughs> yes your choice that's a it's very good advice actually you've given and um we've had a great time it's been great conversations uh maybe before we let you go do you mind uh, if someone wanted to know or get in touch with charge core technology for you do you mind giving your social media um so um charge core technologies on uh on uh on linkedin uh charge core at charge core on twitter charge with uh charge then k o uh one word uh charge cotec on facebook and uh we're not on instagram but yes our website is chargeco.com chargeco charge then ko.com then personally it's mutabazi joffrey on all platforms facebook instagram twitter linkedin but i think yes i'm more active on linkedin i think um <laughs> Than, than most of the other platforms yeah but yeah that's how pretty much anyone can get get in touch with me okay thank you so much Jeffrey i've learned so much thank you so yeah from you so much from you and it's been a pleasure having you on this podcast to be honest it's been a pleasure um being hosted by by you guys um if you've enjoyed this episode subscribe share and follow us on our socials for twitter instagram and facebook our handle is let's start now pod thank you guys hope you enjoyed have a good day bye